All right, you may all be seated. I know you're probably worried of how many hours are you going to be here this morning. That was quite a long passage of scripture. Uh, but I don't think it's going to take us too much time to get through. Uh, some people don't believe me. <laughs> We've laid a lot of groundwork in the last six months, uh, going through the first six chapters now of Genesis. So thank you for the gift of your gospel, your good news, the good news that you have finished sin on the cross, that it is put away, and we are just waiting that time when our bodies no longer experience it. That time is the resurrection, and we thank you that as we look back on your resurrection, we can look forward to our resurrection with you. So this morning, as we remember your death and resurrection, we want to continue to look forward as well to the implications that that has on us today and in the future. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, you may be seated. You guys are probably all surprised uh, we are not in Genesis this morning. I know. Six months I've been like a broken cuckoo clock telling you that we're in Genesis again. Um, uh, however, I'm not going to disappoint. We will start in Genesis today. Uh, because it's very important, the first 11 chapters of Genesis, to understand why we even need a gospel. Why we needed a savior. And that's where the enemy's attacks are generally focused, is in the beginning of his word and in the end. And that's where we want to focus our attention as well, because if that's so important to Satan that he has to keep us from believing it, well, that is definitely something we want to hold on to and believe. So we do not want to lose track of where we came from. We do not want to lose track of what Christ has done. And we do not want to lose track of what that means for us, where we are and where we are going. So we start in Genesis chapter 1, and I promise this preview does not take too long. At least it does not take six months. Uh, Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. He created him for the purpose of ruling over his creation. His purpose for having man rule over his creation was to demonstrate his glory over the universe. And so God blessed them. He gave them what they needed to fulfill this task. He did not tell them to go and do it by their own efforts, but he offered them through faith, through obedience, through resting in him, all that was necessary to glorify him. And he even gave them a negative commandment telling them, that they should not eat from one single tree in the garden. All other trees are available to them, but in the day that they eat of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil, they will surely die. Now, Adam and Eve before were in a state of unconfirmed holiness. God was going to confirm their holiness or confirm that man is inclined towards sin. Man confirms that he is inclined towards sin. And from that point forward, the need for a savior was introduced into mankind. Now this 
God is going to use to demonstrate his glory in ways that we never could have imagined. But we see that in Genesis 3.6, rather than accepting God's estimation, rather than leaning on God's word, rather than trusting that what he says is true, man and woman made a decision for themselves that was contrary to God's word. And in so doing, demonstrated a lack of faith. And in so doing, were disobedient to his word. And that disobedience broke fellowship. In fact, it broke fellowship to such a severity that it is called spiritual death. It has eternal consequences. Part of those consequences, man started to feel immediately. God said to Adam that the blessing that he had from the earth is turned into a curse. The earth is not going to produce for him as it was before. But in toil, he was going to work to bring what the ground would have otherwise given to him freely. He's going to have to work hard all of the days of his life. But eventually he is going to return to dust because he is dust. So all of the effects of the curse came from man's one act of disobedience. That's going to be important. But here in Genesis 3.15, before God even tells man what the curse is going to bring, what their disobedience did to their state, he tells them that he is going to fix the problem. He tells them that there is going to be an eternal conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, but he, a singular masculine pronoun, he shall bruise you on the head, speaking to the serpent, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is called the Proto-Evangelium, the pre-good news. This is the first evidence of what becomes a historical reality in the Gospels. This is God's first promise that he is going to send a savior and that that savior is going to conquer the serpent, going to conquer the devil. Adam and Eve accepted this. Now they look to God's word and they find life in it. Where before, they looked to God's word and found it constraining. Now it is their only hope. And they placed their faith in God's word. And through faith, God's grace works to save them. And so when Adam looks to his wife after God declares that they will both die, he sees her and says, you are now the mother of all living. Because he is not looking at his present condition, but his future promise from God, that life would come through the woman. And so the Lord God clothed them. He covered them. He covered their sins. Romans 5.18 gives us the New Testament interpretation of what happened way back in the garden. This is Paul telling us what it was about and what 
or how it would conclude, rather. So in Romans 5.18, he says, So then, as through one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Romans 5.12, a little earlier, tells us that death came through one man. And life is going to come through one man. 5.19 says, For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. We rest on Christ's finished work, and we receive it by faith. This is the gospel message, and this is what saves. See, the requirement has always been faith, because it's exactly in the realm of faith where man fell, failing to have faith in God's word, but choosing by his own works to achieve what God had not given him to achieve. Man fell, and so God says the test is now in the realm of faith. Have faith, but not in your works, but mine. Trust that I am going to do exactly what I say I'm going to do, and that in that and in nothing else you will have salvation. And so the object of that faith is also given to us, the Word of God. We believe in the Word of God. These are his promises, and in the book, the Gospel of John, we are also shown that this object, the Word of God, is the second person of the Godhead the one who does reveal God's word to man, the word by which God creates. So the object of faith is always God's word. We believe God. The content of what God has revealed about those promises, about the future, is not always as complete as we have it today. Adam and Eve only had the promise that somehow God was going to bring through the seed of the woman, one who would crush the head of the serpent. And by that, they would have life. This was the content of the gospel that they believed. They did not fully understand that that would be on the death of Jesus. They did not know who Jesus was. They did not know that he would die. But faith worked for them back then because Jesus Christ would die. First Corinthians 15.45 says that the first man, Adam, became a living soul. This was in Genesis 1. Genesis 1.27 and also in Genesis 2.7, Adam became a living soul, but the last Adam becomes a life-giving spirit. Life is available through the last Adam, where death is spread to all men through the first Adam, Hebrews 4 tells us why this works. Why was Christ able to be the one who could die so that we could be freed from our sins? Ultimately, he is the perfect sacrifice. He is spotless without blemish. It says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, this is going to be important as we go through the sermon this morning. Let us hold fast to that confession. Let us not believe it just for our eternal salvation, 
but then let it become vain in our day-to-day lives. We want to live by the gospel. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. So how is Jesus Christ the last Adam? Because he underwent the same trial as Adam went. But where Adam was unfaithful, Jesus Christ was faithful. And he fulfills perfectly the prophecy given to Adam and Eve through the curse on the serpent. We celebrated that at Christmas just four months ago. In Luke 1.30, we read, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And Mary wonders, how can this be since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. Jesus was sinless in his activity. He was also sinless in his birth. This is not something that we as sons of Adam enjoy. We are not born sinless. We are born in the image of Adam. We are born in that sin nature, and we are reborn through the life-giving spirit, Jesus Christ, because he was born apart from sin, not because he did not have a human father, but because he had the Holy Spirit as a father. The Holy Spirit produces what is perfect. And so in Acts 4, we read that he is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ was rejected by his people, the Jews. They put him to death. And no, they didn't put him to death the normal way. The crimes which Christ was accused of, though he did not commit, crimes of blasphemy, the sentence for that was stoning, not hanging on a cross. But God had other intentions. God wanted him to take on the sins of the world. And for that, he would have to die on a cross. And so when he was rejected, rather than undergoing the execution by the Jews, he is delivered over to the Romans and undergoes the most horrific death that one could undergo. Death on a cross. And so when we look to him, we know absolutely that there is salvation in no one else, for no one else has been born sinless. No one else has lived a sinless life. And no one else has been offered up as a pure sacrifice for the sins of the world. There is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is salvation in no one else but Jesus Christ. So that's the introduction. It seems like a good place to end, doesn't it? But we haven't quite started our verse yet for this morning. 
we're going to see that it has three elements, three elements that are of importance to us to understand about the gospel. The first is how we receive the gospel. We receive it on faith. And then will be the content of the gospel. What from the revelation of God must we believe in order to be saved? The answer to that is the death and the resurrection. So we'll start with our main point, as we like to do. Faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ saves us eternally from eternal separation from God. Continued faith in the death and the resurrection of Christ enables us to live out our salvation even while waiting glorification with him. And so we begin with faith. This is the point that each of us needs to reach before we can be saved. We are all savable because of the death of Christ, but we receive the application of that salvation at the moment of faith. It is the only requirement placed on man for salvation. There is nothing else that brings us to the cross but faith. John 3.16, Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, a Pharisee. He says, for God so loved the world. Now that's interesting. This is the Greek word cosmos, the world system. This is not ethnos, the individuals in the world. Now, he does love the individuals in the world, but this is something different than Paul generally says, where we are enemies of the cosmos, the world system. While we are enemies of the cosmos, the world system, Jesus Christ still loved it so as to save it. He will come and restore the world system to be one that revolves around him rather than Satan. But here it says he so loved the world, his creation that became corrupted, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. His first advent is to take care of the sin problem. His first advent was not to destroy the world. It was not to free Israel from the clutches of Rome. It was to deal with the sin problem, to take care of Genesis 3, so that when he comes a second time, he can restore Genesis 1. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Faith is the only requirement put on the believer, put on man, so that when he believes at that very moment, he is dead, buried, and resurrected. See, it took Christ three days in the grave. It takes the believer not even three seconds for all of that to be applied to his account. John 5, 24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. And he does not come into judgment, but he passes out of death and into life. John 6, 47, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes has eternal life. 
Now, the Gospels were written for multiple purposes. We have four Gospels with four purposes. The purpose of the Gospel of John was that we might believe and through faith have eternal life. The purpose of the Gospel of John is to teach the saving Gospel of Jesus Christ. And here he puts no requirement on salvation but faith and faith alone. In 1 John 5, this is in his epistles that he wrote about five years later. The testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. Not will have the life, not did have the life, but might lose it. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you who do believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. In other words, I am writing this to you, a church who is a church because you have believed in Jesus Christ, to know that you are eternally secured by that faith, that by that faith you have eternal life and so live in that eternal life Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 gives us that whole process in a snapshot. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, some might say, faith is a work. You cannot get this from the Bible. The Bible teaches the opposite. Some will come in and say, well, if man has to have faith in order to be saved, rather than being saved so that he can have faith, then salvation is by works because faith is a work. Well, then why does Paul on repeated occasion pit faith and works against each other? I'd say we are creating our own definitions for words at that point, rather than letting Paul define his own terms. Paul, writing by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, faith and works are mutually exclusive. Faith is not a work. Now, I was thinking of a, a good illustration for this this morning, and I thought of one that, once again, might be a little offensive to the ladies here, but uh, I'm going to go with it anyways. Now, imagine, husbands, that your wife spends the afternoon cooking Easter dinner, and she says, I've got it taken care of. Go rest. Just trust I'll have it ready on time. Now the kids show up for Easter dinner, and the husband prays, Lord, thank you for my wife who labored over this meal, and thank you for me who labored trusting her to have it here on time. Sounds a little ridiculous, doesn't it? Trusting God is not a work. It is not something that we can boast in. It is something that excludes boasting. We trust God the same way we trust a chair that we sit on. It gives us rest. It keeps us from falling. And that faith has permanent results. There are things that are different about one who has believed for the first time. Things that never could have occurred before faith and things that can never change again. These are called positional truths. It is your new position in Christ. That when you believe, 
You move from death in your trespasses to life in Christ. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 gives us the state before faith of all men. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. Now people again will say, if you are spiritually dead, how can a dead man have faith? I might respond, how can a dead man walk? Here, a dead man in his trespasses is formerly walking. You'd have to apply the same logic here. Dead in trespasses, dead in sins means separated. Just as physical death means separation of the spirit and the body, so spiritual death is separation from the spirit and the body, the spirit of God and the body of man. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Those who do not believe are already judged. Those who do not believe are part of that cosmos system, part of the domain of Satan sharing a destiny with him rather than a destiny with Christ. Thank goodness Paul is able to continue. Thank goodness that is not where the story ends because he says, but God. These are always the greatest statements in Paul's writings, but God. This is what was true, but because of God and no other cause, Something new is true. Something can be different about you. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions. God loved the cosmos system. He made us alive together with Christ. Now Paul is building an argument, but here you see this in parentheses. He just can't wait to get to the punchline. He puts it in a little earlier and he puts it in again in verse 8. He says, by grace you have been saved. He has made us alive together because of the grace of God. The grace of God comes from his mercy and his love. And what is the result of that? He raised us up with him. When we are transferred out of that domain of death, we are immediately transferred into the domain of life together with Christ. He seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. In other words, his purpose is glory. His purpose is to demonstrate his glory. He demonstrates that by holding justice and mercy in the same hand. Justice is poured out on his son, whom he mercifully provided for us in our stead. And because of this, our new permanent condition becomes identity with Christ in his death, in his burial, and in his resurrection. 
You know, too many times I've seen uh, people perhaps post on their Instagram taglines or just a Facebook post, I am crucified with Christ. Now that's one that should never have a period. I am crucified with Christ, semicolon. I am resurrected with Christ. It is one in the same. We should remember both whenever we remember the death of Christ. Ephesians 2.13 gives us the basis by which all of this happens, by the blood of Christ. It is in the blood of Christ shed on our behalf that our sins are taken care of. Leviticus 17.11 tells us that it is by blood, or it is the blood by reason of the life that is in it that makes atonement. Life shed on our behalf so that we can have life, because what we have before is only death. Philippians 3.8 says, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. This does not mean that there is no value in anything, but that when it is compared to what we have in Christ, it is as if it has no value, because it pales in comparison. He continues, that he may gain Christ and he may be found in him. Not having a righteousness of his own, derived from the law. Paul was a law keeper. He kept the Mosaic law. But that was not the righteousness which he would have credited to him, thankfully. The righteousness that he would have credited to him would have nothing to do with his own works but have everything to do with the finished work of Christ. It is that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, not works. Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. This has a view, again, of the present state that looks forward to the future physical resurrection and glorification of the saints. We have our three tenses of salvation. What is finished at the cross? What is applied to our account the moment we believe? What guarantees that we will be glorified in our final tense, glorified together with Christ, separated from sin's presence, dead to sin eternally. Now we are separated from sin's power by the blood of Christ. By his death, we are enabled to withstand the enemy. Beforehand, we are part of his system. We are beholden to Satan. When we are made new, when the life gives us spirit, when the spirit gives us life in Christ, we have a life that can progressively move away from sin. We are no longer held captive 
to it. So faith, which brings salvation, has permanent results. We have a new identity in Christ. We are permanently seated with him in the heavenlies. This cannot change. But we are to continue in faith because our Christian walk, our life here on earth, depends on our fellowship with God. And fellowship can only be had when we agree on the same things. When we continue to agree with the gospel, when we continue to confess the gospel, when we continue to believe the gospel. And so that is why Paul is reminding the Corinthians of the gospel. He has spent about a dozen chapters correcting them. And when he gets to chapter 15, he gives them the greatest chapter in all of scripture on the resurrection. He gives them some of the greatest encouragement of any book in the Bible. That promise of the finished work that has everlasting results. The death and the resurrection of Christ that promises that to those who have already believed here in this church of Corinth, everything is available to them for life and godliness. And more than that, they have a future hope that they can look forward to. And when they train their eyes on that future hope, they are purified. That's John's argument, though. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. Remember, he said the same thing about communion. I've already told you how to do this. Here he's saying, I've already told you this gospel. The message hasn't changed. Nothing about this is different. That gospel which also you received. This is a simple past tense. When they heard the gospel, they believed the gospel. This was all it took to change their position permanently. Their position in Christ is changed, and so now they stand in that gospel. And by which you are saved. Now this changes the tense. This is in present tense. It has the idea of ongoing effects. The same gospel which changed your position, that you stand in, that guarantees an eternity with Christ is also presently working to save you. Then he adds, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now these two clauses have been used to do incredible damage to the perfect gospel, saying that if you do not hold fast, if you do not do the works which should result from salvation, you have now lost your salvation. Or perhaps there is a, some form of theology which thinks they find a clever way around this that says you actually never had salvation even though you thought you did. Even though you believed, you never actually did enough to be saved. 
I would say these are doctrines of demons. That sounds harsh, but the gospel is something you don't mess with. The gospel is the foundation for everything else. If they hold fast to the words which Paul preached, then the problems that they are encountering in the first 14 chapters won't be problems. What is the issue is they are not continuing in their faith. They are acting as carnal Christians. Though they believed the word of truth, they are not living as if they had believed it. They are not continuing to keep their eyes trained on their future glorification with Christ. And they are not believing in the present power of the Spirit. They do not believe in the gospel. And so, their belief, which has eternal consequences and progressive consequences, is still good for their eternal consequences. They are seated with Christ in the heavenlies already, but they are living as if they are not seated with Christ in the heavenlies. They are not living in accordance with their condition. And so all that the gospel offers to them, not just a promise of future glory, but a promise of present freedom from sin, is vanity. Though they believed it, they are not receiving the benefits of it today though it is presently available for them on the basis of faith. Ephesians 1.13, again, tells us an important positional truth. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, right, Paul says that he preached this and they heard it, that is the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, the Corinthians believed it. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge. There's a lot of different words to translate pledge. It's actually a very hard word to translate from the Greek. Some, uh, some translations say an earnest. You could almost say a down payment. But what it is, is a guarantee. This Greek word was originally used in agricultural terms. A bag of the harvest would be sealed and sent to the recipient so that when they opened it, they had a guarantee of what would be inside of the shipment. Nothing about it would change. Once it is sealed, it is sealed permanently until it is opened by the recipient. And who is the recipient? It is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. We are sealed in the Spirit for God. No one else can break that seal. And that seal won't be broken for us to lose our salvation. We are permanently sealed by the Holy Spirit, at the moment we believe, and this is to the praise of his glory, and it guarantees us a future destiny with him. And so everything that is worked out in the meantime is a continuation of the working of the gospel in us. 
It has an eternal effect. It also has a present progressive effect. Continue to believe it so that it has the ability to continue to work in you, to conform you to the image of Christ. Receive the gospel. That is the beginning. Believe in the message that is delivered and be sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise so that you can be enabled to live the Christian life. And in so doing, your faith is not in vain because all that is available in this gift of salvation is accessed through faith. As faith continues, our sanctification continues. Our conformity to Christ's image continues. So that when we previously walked in our trespasses and sins, we now have a different walk. After salvation has taken place in the heart of the believer, we are still commanded to do what is in accordance with our position. However, we are not saved by faith, but sanctified by works. We are saved by faith and sanctified by faith. And as we continue in our faith, God prepares the works for us. He prepares the energy to do them for us. It says that we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. No longer are our works, or no longer is our walk in the works of disobedience, in the works of Satan, but our works are in the security of our salvation. We function properly because we are saved by faith and because we continue in faith. And so we are being saved, and that is not in vain. Paul is going to end 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with the statement that our labors are not in vain when they are to the glory of the Lord. But now we come to the content of the saving message. We know that it is by faith and that faith has perfect results, both in the future and in the present. But what is the content of that message which we must believe in the church age? Well, the content is the death and resurrection of Christ. The death of Christ has certain implications that will be important to look at. So does the resurrection. I might also make a note here. Um, my slide is correct. Your notes are not. Uh, letter C is not bring the animals. It is substitution, which is a, an interesting kind of mistake, but there you go. So what is this message that Paul says he preached that they believed that saved them and is saving them? He says, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Now, this is a bit different than what he said about communion. He said he delivered to them what he first heard about communion. 
but he did not add that it was of first importance. Now it is important, but he is elevating this above every message that he has given to them thus far in 1 Corinthians. If they know nothing else about Christ, they must know this, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day, and that this was according to scripture. And so Christ died. His death had effects on our sin. It was according to scripture. It was prophesied. It was God's will and God's purpose that it happened. And he was buried, confirming his death. You see, we believe the evidence as well, not just the event. Romans 5, 10 through 11 says that while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So we might ask, what is this word, reconciliation, that Paul deems so important in this passage that he uses it three times? Reconciliation is a correcting of a relationship where sin in the garden turned our backs from God or our backs to God. And because of this, God had to turn his back towards us as well. Because God cannot have sin in him. He created a method of reconciliation so that in Christ, he turns back towards us with the perfect sacrifice of Jesus standing between us sinners and him, a perfect and sinless God. And so that all that is left is for man to turn back to him in faith. This is the ministry of reconciliation on the basis of the blood of Christ, which stands between us and God. Colossians 1.19 says of this reconciliation, it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, Jesus Christ, and through him to reconcile just those who he foreordained and chose because he liked them better. Nope. All things. All things. You know, it doesn't even say just all people. He reconciles all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through whom or through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, this is an incredible domain. It's almost as if the extent of his reconciliation is the same as the extent of Adam's sin and the curse. The curse which separates us from God is made null by the reconciliation of Christ, by his blood. And so there is not one person on this earth for whom reconciliation has not been made. There is not one person on this earth whom God has not turned back towards. But sadly, many will not turn back towards him. 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to him through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. 
namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. This is the gospel that we preach. What does his death do? It makes you savable. Without the blood of Christ, there can be no salvation. Without the wrath of God satisfied, there is no salvation. And so Jesus Christ, in order to perform the reconciliation, became a propitiation. This means that he took on the wrath that we rightfully deserve from a just and holy God. All of the righteous demands of the law, which, to be honest, gives the death penalty for just about everything. He took that on his shoulders, and he fulfilled the law. In 1 John 2, 1 through 2, it says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. In other words, so that your walk might be in accordance with your position. I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation, the wrath bearer, the wrath absorber for our sins. All that we deserved to receive for our sins, he received in our stead. But not for ours only. John is writing to a Christian church of believers. They have received this ministry of reconciliation. The work of propitiation that Christ has done, they have received. But the propitiation goes beyond those who have believed. Even those who have not yet believed are already, their sin is already taken care of. And you see, the only sin that a person will be sent to hell for is the sin of unbelief, the most unnecessary destiny ever to have been thought of. He has taken care of every single sin, and it is received on our account the moment we believe. And so Romans 3 Paul says that now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. The righteousness that the law demanded, Christ fulfilled. Those amazingly difficult responsibilities under the law are credited to our account through faith in Christ, who perfectly fulfilled the law of righteousness. And he says then that there is no distinction because all have sinned and they have all fallen short of the glory of God. There is no difference between one who will become saved through faith, and one who will choose not to be saved through faith. The difference happens the moment you do believe. 
There is not one for whom salvation was provided and another for whom there was not. Salvation was provided for all of humanity at one time. And it is received at the moment of the individual's faith. Romans 3.24 continues, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. This includes Adam and Eve's sin. This includes the sin of anyone from Adam to Christ to us. All those who sinned before the cross had their sins taken care of at the cross. And we, looking back on the cross, have our sins taken care of as well. But God looked over those sins because he knew that his son would pay that price. He would redeem mankind so that through faith, those who believed in the past could be saved in the future. And so for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. His justice was satisfied at the cross. And so he is just in giving life to sinners. He is just in overlooking our sins because justice has been served. And it was served by one taking our place, standing where we deserved to stand, and taking on God's wrath instead. An atonement. John one twenty nine, when John the baptizer identifies the Messiah, he identifies him not as the one who has come to free Israel from the clutches of the Romans. No, there is a much more eternal purpose. When John saw Jesus coming to him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He came to take care of the real problem before he comes later and takes care of all of the problems. Without dealing with sin, there is no point in rescuing Israel or any of us from our present temporal conditions. Those will be taken care of at the Lord's return. But he took care of the core issue, the sin. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. He had to become a man in order to die for man. He is a kinsman redeemer. We say he could not be an angel, alien, or ape. He had to be the second Adam in order to die in man's place 
He had to be a man. And so he took on flesh and became our propitiation. So where we are born to live, he uniquely was born to die. Born for the very purpose of taking on the sin of the world. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He is a sympathetic high priest, one who knows the condition of the flesh, one who has overcome, and through him, we overcome. All those who believe are overcomers in him, not because of our works, but because of his. First Peter 2, you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him, to God, who judges righteously. When the world was against him, even Jesus Christ put his trust in God. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep. But now you have returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your souls. It was prophesied that Jesus Christ would fulfill Isaiah 53. It says, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And so all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. This was before they knew that Jesus Christ would take on this sin. Already God had told his prophet Isaiah, that he would put the sins of the world on someone else. And so in Romans 5.8, it says, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were part of the cosmos world system, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. If he loved us, to die for us when we were sinners, how much more does he love us and care for us even now? I like how Arnold Fruchtenbaum summarizes Christ's death on the cross and its eternal value. He says that by dying on the cross, Yeshua presented himself as the perfect sacrifice that satisfied the demands of God's justice upon sin. He paid the penalty for sin on behalf of man and appeased the wrath of God. He became our propitiation. Thus, he bought forgiveness and reconciled the world to God, making it savable. Through personal faith in this act of Messiah, man accepts his substitution as payment for his sin. So when we believe the first thing we believe about what God has said is that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that 
takes care of the issue. But the second part is the glorious future we look forward to and what we have received in the present for new life. You see, Paul continues in 1 Corinthians 15.4. He says that the, uh, the rest of the gospel he presented to them was that Christ was raised. He was raised on the third day, and it was according to scriptures, and that he appeared to many others after his death, which again is evidence of his resurrection. In fact, he has quite a list of people he appeared to. He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. You see, when he's writing to the Corinthians, and still many of those who have seen Christ are still alive, they could have gone and verified that. Perhaps they did. Some of them had fallen asleep, but not all of them. Then he appeared to James, his own brother, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he, he appeared to me also. Paul was a witness of the resurrected Christ. And he is writing of the resurrection, something that he has seen face to face. This was prophesied. It was according to scripture. Psalm 16 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You will not abandon my soul to the grave. Nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Now, Paul in Acts is going to grab a hold of this prophecy from the Psalms and say that David did go to the grave and did undergo decay. But Jesus Christ went to the grave and did not undergo decay, but was raised again. And he was raised again on the third day. Fascinatingly, Jesus Christ even prophesies this. In each gospel, he prophesies his own death explicitly. And they don't get it still somehow. Perhaps they are using allegorical interpretation to interpret Jesus' words, but it was a very literal prophecy that Christ made. And so from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. It was a divine imperative. And he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And you see, when this actually happened, the disciples were shocked, almost as if Christ had not told them. It's important to believe the resurrection. Acts 10, verse 40. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. See, when Christ was resurrected, all that God said about him was verified, was validated. His power was confirmed. His task, his duty on earth 
had been performed, and he had overcome death and received the right from God to judge both living and the dead. Paul goes on to talk about the significance of the resurrection and why we must believe it. In 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14, he says, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It does not produce the correct results. For your faith is also in vain. It cannot produce the correct results. If people don't believe in the bodily resurrection of the saints, because resurrection is impossible, then there was no resurrection of Christ either. If there was no resurrection of Christ, then Paul says our faith is worthless. We don't believe just in the death of Christ. We believe in the resurrection of Christ. He paid for our sins and he gave us new life. That should be one statement. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. What a depressing world that would be. For if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we of all men are most to be pitied. If the gospel does not have eternal effects on us, then it is worthless. If it does not do all that it says, then the gospel is in vain. Our faith is in vain. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, not only is there no power to live today, but there is no power to raise us in the last day. Jesus Christ overcame the grave, and by the same power, we will be raised in the last day, and by the same power, we have life today to live in Christ. See, 1 Corinthians 15.20 says that this is just the beginning of the resurrection. Now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And so then finally, what are the implications of the resurrection life that we receive? Colossians 3, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Don't lose the faith. If this has saved you, don't let it be in vain so that it's only good for the last day. Let it be good for today as well. Where Christ is, he is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Remember what he said to the Ephesians? You are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Ephesians 1.18 I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of his strength, the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. The same power which did that, which rose him from the grave, which, by which he ascended into heaven, works in us today the hope of our calling, the glory of our inheritance in him. And so Romans 6, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? All of us who have been changed into conformity with his death have been changed into conformity with his life as well. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism and death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Notice this does not bring it forward to third tense salvation, glorification. This keeps it in the present tense. Just as he was raised from the dead, so also we live even today. Eternal life does not begin the moment we die. Eternal life begins the moment we believe. We are dead and raised again already. We await the moment when our body catches up with our spirit. Hopefully, by the Lord's soon return. For some of us, it will be by physical bodily resurrection. Romans 6, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. This has present tense implications again. For he who has died is freed from sin. We are no longer held in the clutches of Satan, but rather we are held in the double grip of God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. And being seated with him, we are enabled with all the power that we need through faith to do what is pleasing to him. Romans 8, in Christ, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. It has spiritual and physical implications, the resurrection. It's not just the hope of being born again from the dead, but of being born again spiritually. The same power that raised him from the cross gives you new life in the spirit. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is what Paul is talking about when he says that he does not want our faith to be in vain. We are no longer beholden to the world that we once were, we are freed from sin, and so the gospel should have an ever-present effect on us. It should have a present effect on our walk. It should be what we hold most important in our lives, because it is the power by which we live today. 
As I said, he ends chapter 15, his great discourse on the resurrection, with this hope. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. And so, for our present walk, we ask the same question that John asked um, Martha. Was it Martha? I think it was Martha. In John 11, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Our eternal life has begun. Do you believe this? We could ask, have you believed this? Have you been saved? And do you believe this? Are you walking in that salvation? And so our takeaway, the gospel is the cross and the resurrection. The cross is our security. The resurrection is our hope. Looking back at the cross, do not forget to look forward to the resurrection of the body. And do not forget that you are already living a new resurrection life. Through faith, we are united in Christ's death and born again into his eternal life. Keep believing this. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that your gospel does not end in the grave, but that it ends with new life. That it is no ending at all, but that it is a new beginning. We thank you that it is not only a future hope, but it is also a present hope. We thank you that you have put no burden on us besides faith and faith alone. And we thank you that we can trust that you uphold us now and forevermore on the basis of your son's finished work on the cross. We thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. <laughs>